Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, episode 100, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Deacon Stephen Gray Donis. Stephen, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Deacon Stephen has been writing about films since 2000 when he created Decent Films. And for over a decade, he was the film critic for the National Catholic Register and has also written regularly for, among other publications, Catholic Digest, Crux, Christianity Today, and Catholic World Report. He is a member of the New York Film Critics Circle and a deacon in the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Newark. And he and his wife, Suzanne, have seven children. We wanted to have you on today because we've been talking a lot about movies uh, since we restarted the podcast and we're in a, a sort of retrospective mood a little bit. And Kara wished she could have been here for the 100th episode, but uh, her her daughter, who has become kind of our unofficial mascot on the podcast, Vivi, is, is not feeling so hot. So Kara's taking care of her and getting her back in fighting shape. So she'll be back next time. I know you've been writing about some recent movies that we are going to talk about a little bit later. But first, why don't we start out talking about just the general value of reflecting on mainstream film for the life of faith? Because I know this is something in your own life, not just professionally, but also spiritually, that this is something that's meant a great deal to you, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, movies have been an important part of my life since I was very young, and they play a role in our culture, which, you know, provides the fabric for our interaction with one another, that's, that's really unparalleled. Uh, they, they have a power to communicate that goes beyond any of the traditional arts. Cinema has been described as the synthesis of all the other arts, of the performing arts, the literary arts, and even the visual or plastic arts. It, you know, it's, it's communicated to whole populations in a way that no other art form ever has been. And whether it's television or videos on YouTube, YouTube, motion pictures speak to people and that they kind of provide a mirror to us of, of who we are as a culture. So whether movies are important to you as a viewer, I think it's good to know what people are watching, what people are talking about. It sort of provides a way for us to talk to one another. And for me, as a believer and as, as somebody who has tried to build bridges between believing and, and non-believing communities, that was really one of the fundamental things that drew me to film criticism. I, I wanted to kind of translate between these two groups of people that you know I feel like I, I know so well. I wanted to help non-believers see that there was a way of engaging with film from a faith perspective that went deeper than just, you know, counting swear words or whatever. Right. But I also wanted to help believers see that there could be value in this art form and even in movies that they might not be otherwise inclined to look into, into, say, a foreign film, a subtitled film or an R-rated film other than, you know, The Passion of the Christ. Passion of the Christ, right. You know, you're sort of trying to mark out film among different other art forms. I'm not the most like cultured or well-read person, but film has always sort of jumped out to me in sort of a similar way where it does something in a narrative format that, you know, most other art forms either don't originate in a narrative way, like a statue is not a story generally, although it may try to imply a story. But if, if I think of comparing film to like different narrative arts, like literature, like stage theater, or something like that. It seems like film operates in a way that might, it might suggest religion or ritual in a different way in its ability to like make outwardly visible some inward reality. And I guess I'm being a little hyperbolic about film because that's a very optimistic view of cinema because it 
doesn't exactly reach those heights very often, but it can, I guess, in principle, in a sort of secular way. Yeah. You know, literature, even when a book becomes wildly popular and everyone is reading it, literature is an essentially solitary activity. You are the person reading a book, whereas cinema in its essence is a shared activity. Even if you're at home watching a movie by yourself, you're still watching the exact same movie in a way that no two people read the exact same book because we all fill in the books that we read with our own ideas Mm. and images and imagination. That's a better point than the one I was making. (laughs) You know, when, when I was pointing out to my kids, I'm a big fan from my my boyhood of Lloyd Alexander's Perdane Chronicles. And when I read them, I tend to imagine them starting out in a setting, which I realized later in life, I located in the backyard of the house where I grew up. And my kids have completely different pictures in their head of those same scenes. So when I read my kids for the first time, I read them out loud, The Lord of the Rings. I made sure that we read the entire series the lord of the rings before i let them watch the movie because i really i wanted them to have that individual experience Mm -hmm. of tolkien's characters and his settings and so forth before we backfilled them with peter jackson's ideas which are also brilliant but you know this is part of the power of cinema is that it gives you so much that literature asks of you and and so we can you know Different people have different preferences, but it, it, that is the particular power of cinema. If you sit three people down and read a book, and if you were to look inside their heads at their experience of reading it, you would see not one movie. You would see like three different movies. It would be like Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments from the 20s, Cecil B. DeMille's 1950s Ten Commandments, and The Prince of Egypt versus you and I and one other person sitting down and watching the same movie. And because movies have that ability to show us things that we've never seen before, whereas a book can't really do that. Yeah. When you read a book, you fill it with the images and the ideas that you already have. A book can introduce you to new ideas. It can't show you entirely new worlds. Movies can. Mm -hmm. Roger Ebert once pointed out that one of the most important things a movie can do is, quote, to take us out of our personal box of time and space and invite us to empathize with those of other times, places, races, creeds, classes, and prospects. Hmm. Being part of something greater, it's that's so weird because I feel like a common refrain in a lot of popular movies is not that <laughs> necessarily. Like in terms of the actual theme of a particular movie, it's very often like, being yourself as maybe being the highest value. But that's a great quote in film structural ability and the guts of what it is to be able to bring you outside of yourself and enter into something greater. But it is true that movies don't always live up to that. Uh, And and this is this goes to the love-hate relationship that the Catholic Church has had with cinema from the earliest days throughout the 20th century and beyond. You know, Pope Pius the 11th in Vigilante Cura 1936 encyclical the first papal document really tackling motion pictures talked about the power of cinema both to ennoble and to debase and and movies can while they have this unmatched power among the arts to invite us to empathy they also have a great power to dehumanize and demonize people who are different from us and reinforce us in our own narrative to tell us the things that we already know and to send us away no richer than we were before and perhaps poorer. 
Speaking of the church's love-hate relationship with film, maybe it's a good time to talk about film's love-hate relationship with religious themes, and and specifically uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's relationship with religious themes that you wrote about recently in a piece on Marvel's nihilism as a result of the newest Thor movie, Love and Thunder, about how the Marvel Cinematic Universe is increasingly depicting things that look like an afterlife or look like some higher world that is culturally associated with mythology or maybe something that we would call religion. But, you know, how are they treating it? Are they treating it as just this or that mythology? Or are they treating it as a stand-in for any sort of religion whatsoever? Thor is really the most recent addition to a kind of trend going through Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And for me, really kicking off in a big way with Chloe Zhao's Eternals. When the Marvel movies started out, they were very, very secular. Religion was avoided as much as possible. It was a really big deal in the first Avengers movie when Scarlett um, Johansson's Black Widow said to Captain America, those guys are out of legend. They're basically gods. And he turns and says to her, there's only one God, ma'am. And I don't think he dresses like that. You know, it's just to have a character affirm a fundamental belief in God, that was a big deal, you know, compared to, say, Netflix's Daredevil TV series, in which the main character's Catholicism is a big part of his character mm -hmm. and of the storylines. So Disney, I think, has a cultural ethos that tends to be very secular. I wouldn't say as much so much anti-religious as just fundamentally non-religious. Yeah. But as the stories get bigger and bigger and they begin spending more time with characters like Thor and Doctor Strange, avoiding engagement with religion becomes increasingly difficult. They basically have to take it on in one way or another. And what's wound up happening in the Marvel films is religion is basically treated on a culturally relative level. So whatever religion is part of your cultural background is more or less true for you. It can even be the case that when you die, you go to an afterlife that conforms to your cultural expectations. Like in Black Panther. Exactly. So when Black Panther goes into a drug-induced alternate state, he finds himself in the plane of the ancestors where he can talk to his dead father. But then in the TV show Moon Knight, which is based on Egyptian mythology, you know, there's a completely different portrayal of the afterworld, you know, there's and there are others as well. That aspect of religion is kind of culturally relativized. But on a deeper level, the way that the Marvel Universe expands as the stories get bigger and bigger and more and more cosmic, it begins to look as if a fundamentally nihilistic reality is in place that kind of moots human decision that makes our actions meaningless rather than meaningful. There's kind of a, a tension between the basically humanistic ethos of the Marvel movies, which, you know, try to save human life, don't let people die, you know, be nice to each other, things like that. Yeah. And then the underlying nihilistic cosmos, which suggests that human life has no ultimate purpose and our, our decisions ultimately don't matter. Higher, like more transcendent forms of life are either indifferent or they look down their nose at us in a sort of trivial way. Like Russell Crowe's Zeus in <laughs> Love and Thunder. I haven't seen Love and Thunder, but I, I saw some of the clips of how he's portrayed. And if that's what the gods look like, we, you know, we certainly don't want to be among them for any stretch of time. If we don't want to be among them, there's not much beyond the here and now to aspire towards. 
it's funny because I think this cosmic nihilism in Marvel ultimately comes from its desire to avoid any kind of controversy, which ultimately means avoid taking any kind of particular positions. Uh, They want movies that can play in middle America and in the Middle East and in China. And and so there's a lot of a lot of things that you have to avoid. And so it's hard to take a character like Captain America and make him really stand for something like he can't be really patriotic. He can't care about the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, because if he does, you know, that's not going to play in China. So what the movies are ultimately about, the main idea of the MCU is suspicion of authority suspicion of the man of the powers that be a powerful patriarchal establishment figure is always a good target you know he could be somebody like obadiah stain from the first iron man movie or nick fury he could be a being of some kind of divine status odin or zeus in the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie, there was Ego the Celestial. Ego's my favorite. Uh, we're gonna do we're <laughs> gonna do an episode on uh, on that one later uh, in a few months because I think there's there's a lot of daddy issues to unpack with Ego and Kurt Russell's portrayal of him. But the bigger the movies get, the bigger the man gets. So it's it's one thing to question the man if he's the CEO of a company or the head of a government agency like Nick Fury, because there are rules and laws that go higher than that. Yeah. And then even if it's a being like Odin or Ego the Celestial, you can still hold them accountable to some kind of higher reality. But when you get to a story like Eternals and it turns out that life on earth and even light in the universe and the creation of man roles that in Christianity and Judaism are traditionally ascribed to God instead are given to a character named Arishem who turns out to have no interest in human beings. We're not created in his image. He doesn't care about us. Instead, we're just part of an engine, which is responsible for creating another being like him. At that point, who are you going to go up the chain to and complain to? Who's to say that that's not what human nature is all about? And this is where I think the nihilism comes in. Yeah. The higher the aspirations and the, the kind of storytelling framework go, the harder it is for them to avoid nihilism, it feels like. Because the only alternative is to make a real a real theological claim, which is counter to the mission. So, the, yeah, it, it seems like they're getting more and more into a difficult spot. I think in one way, what it ultimately comes down to is the more questions you answer, the more things you give some kind of mundane explanation to, the less room there is in your universe for God. In the original Iron Man, when Tony Stark has an encounter with his mortality, he says, I shouldn't be alive unless it was for a reason. That's the kind of thing that people say when there's mystery at the top of the chain, when there's a possibility that someone is pulling strings who has some kind of higher plan. And skepticism for the higher plan for the grand design is kind of baked into the MCU's hostility toward the man or toward the powers that be. What I look for when I watch these movies is I say, is there at least room for God? Is there a mystery? Is there a question where we can say, God could be here. And and I think at this point, what I'm looking at in the Marvel universe is the question of the various afterlives and, you know, whatever ultimate reality is behind that. Who decides who are the damned souls and who are the rewarded souls? Who is worthy for, you know, you can call it the field of reeds or Valhalla, you know, then you have the damned souls in Multiverse of Madness. 
and you know when we talk about god we have to acknowledge the fact that characters like captain america moon knight ms marvel who was muslim and now they're folding daredevil who's catholic into the mcu as well these characters believe in a god who is different from all the gods that we've seen in the show and so my question is how about that god is there is there room for him and maybe there is in the unanswered questions about the afterlife. So I'm interested to see how the MCU handles that question going forward. I've been wanting to see them gather all the Catholic superheroes together because there are others. There's uh, Nightcrawler from the X-Men. There's Gambit, who's Cajun uh, and therefore obviously Catholic. I think the Punisher is like lapsed, angry Catholic. Just let's have somebody who has a you know particular charism to reach out to these troubled superpowered catholics and put together some kind of religious community for them that would that would be really fun but will probably never, never happen but yeah no you're right as long as the the world that the movie sets up leaves some room for god even if the characters don't necessarily believe in god explicitly like there's still there's still a lot to work with when you were talking about that it made me think of like in lord of the rings where Gandalf makes a very oblique reference to some kind of higher power when he's talking to Frodo about how there are other wills in this world at work beside the will of evil. And he's sort of making reference to the higher powers and the one God that never actually explicitly gets mentioned, but it's there. It's, you know, it's present in the, in the far background at the very least. It, it definitely brings out how the, the world of the Marvel Cinematic Universe is very different than, say, the world of Tolkien. And that could be a good transition to talking about the Rings of Power. In, indeed it is. And, and we've been watching the Rings of Power show, though we have not finished watching it. So we're going to wait until Kara comes back in a little while to do a full recap of uh, season one of the Rings of Power. But uh, Stephen, do you have some initial thoughts? I know you've been writing about that show as well. Well, well, the topic that you just raised, Tolkien's kind of oblique way of engaging the idea of divine providence uh, with Gandalf saying that there was another power at work in Bilbo's finding the ring and that he can put it no plainer than to say that Bilbo was meant to find the ring. And in that case, also uh, Frodo was meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. The reason that Gandalf can't put it any plainer is that Tolkien is very concerned to avoid explicit religious references in the Lord of the Rings. It is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, as he says, but he means for the religious themes to be encoded in metaphor and symbolism. So, that's as close as he can get to the idea of divine providence without blowing the lid off what he's trying to do. And so I find it very interesting that similar ideas are at work in the rings of power. They haven't gotten everything right about Tolkien, but this is one thing potentially in order to, to know for sure we're going to have to see how the story ends. But this is one thing that, that's potentially there. Galadriel meets a new character, at least as far as we know, he's a new character. We don't know who he's <laughs> going to turn out to be, called Halbrand. And she wants him to join her in a quest. And she has a very interesting line that sounds a lot like what Gandalf says. She says, ours was no chance meeting, not fate, nor destiny, nor any other words men use to speak of forces they lack the conviction to name. Mm. Ours was yeah. the work of something greater. And that language of forces that men lack the conviction to name, something that goes beyond what we call fate or destiny, that to me sounds a lot like Gandalf's 
I can put it no plainer. There's something here that we want to say, but we can't come right out and say it. Yeah, I think there's a lot baked into the way they're writing this show, which for the most part is written originally and not drawing directly from Tolkien's writings. Another theme that the showrunners, I think, are really running with from Tolkien is the symbolism of light and shadow. And this is something that is a big idea in Tolkien. Sunlight is anathema to orcs. Episode one of the Rings of Power opens with an almost Johannine meditation on light and darkness. We're told that nothing is evil from the beginning. The imagery and the way that it's used really, I think, reflects Tolkien's approach to portraying good and evil. What I found interesting about one of the recent episodes was a line borrowed from Tolkien's narration in The Return of the King. It's not a line of dialogue, but it becomes dialogue here. Oh, is that the star? Yes, yes. Yeah. Sam's Sam's reflection on seeing the star. Uh, that that idea is expressed in what Tolkien writes is that the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was a light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And I think it's beautiful that the Rings of Power showrunners have made that line of narration into dialogue. Gosh, I want to talk about how that star is Elrond's dad, but I don't think we can. <laughs> There's a lot more for us to get into in the future, and you've you've just outlined a big aspect of that. But if we talked more about it now, we'd be here for way longer than we have time for. <laughs> the Rings of Power is not the only recent work, even in spite of the pandemic, to come out that has given us a lot of food for reflection. Yeah, we've been talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and now the Rings of Power, where there is some kind of religious element in either the source material or uh, overtly in the themes, but movies in general, whatever the subject matter is about, can often offer material for moral reflection, for reflection on uh, on what it means to be human, on, on who we are as, as a culture. And, you know, I think about two of the most interesting and popular movies of this year. You know, let's just go there and embrace Top Gun Maverick uh, to begin with. Yes. Um, <laughs> Also, I want to say Denis Veneuve's Dune Part 1, uh, which I think are the, are the two most incredible spectacles that we've seen so far this year. And, you know, before getting into any of the moral themes of Maverick or the religious themes of Dune, I think it's worth just engaging the experience of watching these movies as spectacle and enjoying the thrills that they have to offer us just for what they are. This is something that uh, Pope Pius XII in his 1955 um, addresses on the ideal film talks about. This is a quote, even superficial entertainment can rise to high artistic levels and be classed as ideal since, and I love this, man has shallows as well as depths. Huh. So we want movies that have deep themes and and that really you know reveal moral religious spiritual truths to us but there's also something to be said for just kicking back and enjoying a movie for what it is there's a line in dune that connects to that and and it's it's a line that the movie borrows without credit from a dutch clergyman and philosopher gerard vanderlau and the line is the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved but a reality to be experienced that's true about art too. You know, as a critic, 
I do approach movies partly as a problem to be solved because it's my job to explain, to expand on, to unpack, to help people understand why did I enjoy that movie so much? Or what was my problem with that? Or perhaps to show them, you know, something that they didn't experience, or at least to offer them another way to think about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you go and you watch a movie like Dune or a movie like Maverick, and you're seeing things that you've never seen before, things that no one has ever put on the screen. This is one of the reasons why I am really looking forward to James Cameron's new Avatar movie, because nobody knows spectacle like Cameron. You know, you don't just address humanity in one way, you address humanity in every way. Wherever he is, you enter into. So you mentioned Top Gun Maverick, you mentioned Dune Part 1, and you also wanted to uh, say something about the Batman, too. Yeah, you know, I'm a big comic book guy. I've loved superheroes my entire life, and I'm always interested in a new take on a classic character. And Matt Reeves is someone who I've been very interested in since his two installments in the Planet of the Apes series. I thought mm. he brought a real moral perspective and a humanistic depth to those films, which I thought it was some of the best popular movie making that came out in the last decade. And so I was really interested to see what he would do with the Batman. And in a certain sense, I'm still interested to see what he's going to do with it because <laughs> it's the first of a planned trilogy and you get to the end and it really is part one. This is this is a very dark setup for what I hope is going to be a film that is more, you know, Batman talks in the movie about how people don't just need vengeance, they need hope. And I can only hope that that's going to materialize in the sequel. <laughs> but but even on its dark level, I think there's something really powerful about the way that the movie engages themes like disappointment with social institutions. And in particular, disappointment with father figures, especially revered father figures. And I think this is a distinction with a particular poignance for Catholics. The Batman is about these themes. It's also about, though, anger and disillusionment over efforts at renewal and change that have been promised for decades and that just fail over and over again. Bruce Wayne's father, Dr. Wayne, he's a philanthropist. He believes in giving back to his community. His efforts are meant to help the lower and the middle classes. But that philanthropy has not borne the fruit that it was meant to. And so when you see social institutions and people who have good intentions attempting to rebuild faith in our institutions, and then we don't see the results that we want, where do we go from there? What are we going to try that we haven't done already? And, and I think this is something that a lot of Catholics have struggled with over the decades and are still struggling with. And, and the movie spoke to me very powerfully on that level. And in the Nolan Dark Knight trilogy that came out a few years ago, they do draw some attention to the character of Bruce Wayne's father. And he's sort of the same kind of thing. He's a doctor who's a philanthropist who is publicly looked up to. But in those movies, that is true. There's no more... There's no more to say about the character and the fact that his legacy wasn't followed up on wasn't so much his fault. It was the, the people of Gotham's inability to follow up on that. Whereas here in the, the Matt Reeves Batman movie that just came out, that character of Bruce Wayne's father is not the same moral paragon. It's been a little while since I've seen it, but it, it seems like there was a connection between Thomas Wayne's moral failings and the corruption that still prevents good from being done in the city of Gotham. There is. There's definitely a connection there. And, and that really speaks to the anger and to the darkness of the film. 
that the people we look to for salvation, the people that we put our faith in, the people that we believed we had a right to put our faith in, they let us down and they continue to let us down. So does Matt Reeves have hope to offer? Does Batman have something to say about the possibility of redemption, about the possibility of rebuilding faith in our institutions? Asking that of a superhero movie, that might be a little much. But, you know, if it, if it doesn't go there, then I'm going to want to know why he raised the questions in the first place. Yeah, that was a really good way to raise that question, right? Because Batman can't talk about the actual source of hope directly, sort of in the same way that Sam looking up at that star doesn't know about the actual source of hope, even if it is there. Now, those movies, however, are not really concerned with marriage and family, although you certainly touched on like the fatherhood angle that's in some of the Batman. Are there any movies, uh, maybe more recent, but not necessarily recent, um, that you can maybe commend to us to look at more in the future as uh, having a good perspective on the call to love? So many of the movies that are worth seeing and recommending do tend to deal with very kind of intense and dark subject matter. And while I think it's important to see movies like that, it can also become draining. You know, you, you watch, especially for, for film critics at the end of the years, we're trying to catch up on our, our awards worthy candidates. It can be a draining experience to, to watch the misery of the human condition on the screen hour after hour. So I find myself turning to movies that in some way offer an antidote, movies that are about wholesome human experience, about, about the positive side of human life. And there are movies like that, um, that, that deal with marriage and human relationships in very positive ways. One of my favorite movies of the last 25 years, uh, bar none, is John Crowley's Brooklyn, based on uh, the best-selling 2009 novel by Colm Tolbin. It's a mid-20th century story about a young girl from a small village in Ireland who comes to live in Brooklyn through the auspices of a generous Catholic priest. Saoirse Ronan plays the girl. Jim Broadbent plays the benevolent Catholic priest who arranges her passage, sets her up with a place to live, helps her to find a job, and then also helps her uh, go to night school to improve her prospects. So it's a really interesting portrait of the immigrant experience, of the contrasts between life in rural Ireland and urban New York, Brooklyn, but it's also a very touching romance and, and a, a very insightful portrait of a romantic relationship between the protagonist and a young Italian boy that she meets. They're both Catholic, but they have very different immigrant experiences. They fall in love very quickly. Both of them are making a real effort to be what the other one needs them to be. And so we see that aspect of love and marriage that molds two people to each other, um, that, that, that both partners in the relationship have to see what the other person needs them to be and, and each kind of shape themselves. But, but there's, there's a reciprocity. It isn't just one person reshaping themselves to please the other person. There's, there's a real mutuality there. And it's a very persuasive love story in that respect. It's a romance that rushes rather hastily into marriage for a very specific reason. There's a, a tragedy that draws the heroine back to Ireland. And her boyfriend, before she goes, he insists that they get married. She says, isn't it enough if I promise? And he says, if you can promise, 
you can do this. His fear is that if she goes back, she will see the life that she could have had if she'd stayed in Ireland and she might become someone else, someone other than the person that she was becoming to be with him. And this happens. She goes back to Ireland and she winds up stepping into a social role related to the death in the family. Um, and she does begin to see how things could have turned up very differently if she hadn't gone to America. She does begin to see that she could be happy here. She could have a very different kind of happiness than the happiness that she was beginning to find in Brooklyn. What is really underlined, I think, in, in all of this is how through stories that we tell ourselves and that we tell other people about who we are and where we came from, our sense of identity is crafted. And when we move in different circles, when we are in different social situations, we become different social selves. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, my family brings out a side in me that my coworkers don't see. And my parishioners see a side of me that my brother deacons don't see. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as all of these social selves have a fundamental underlying moral compatibility. The problem becomes when we give ourselves permission in some social situations to do things that we wouldn't do in other social situations. You know, then we begin to compartmentalize and fissures grow in our sense of identity. We become fragmented. You just described I, all I was thinking was like integration and not having that integration is like a big danger. And that's literally what the word integrity means is having that moral compatibility across all those different sort of senses of identity in different circles. Integrity, I think, is a very underappreciated word. We too often use it to mean just a synonym for, for honesty or trustworthiness. But if you think of its non-moral connotations, you think of engineering or medicine, mm -hmm. structural integrity is what holds a building together. Integrity is what holds all of the different parts of a thing into a stable unity. And when you don't have that, you know, you have situations like Bill Cosby mm -hmm. or Theodore McCarrick, people that many people thought that they knew and, and could vouch for. And it's not even that they're necessarily faking when they're with some people. They are genuinely caring, decent, compassionate human beings. And then they get into a different social situation and they become monsters. And both are true because there's a lack of integrity. And then, you know, you have this kind of dissolution at the center of the self. You have this question that arises, who is a person really? And I think sometimes when this condition progresses, the answer can be maybe there's ultimately no real self there at all. And that's a very scary thought mm -hmm. that leads us to the portraits of damnation in C.S. Lewis's uh, The Great Divorce. When the self becomes fragmented in this way, can you just fall apart and cease to be a person? That's a frightening thought. That's a great point that a seemingly unsuspecting movie like Brooklyn can help bring out when you're able to talk about movies with other people, which is what we try to do. Okay, so I want to wrap up 
by doing a little bit of rapid fire. Do you have some recommendations for movies we can talk about in future episodes? Other movies with portrayals of marriage that I think are, are really worth taking a look at include Jim Jarmusch's Patterson with Adam Driver. Another one of those antidote movies, a movie that's very kind of low key, very quiet. Nothing much happens in the movie. And yet you meet a couple that you would love to spend time with, that you would love to be neighbors with. I got to be honest, I did not understand that movie the first time I saw it. I liked Adam Driver in it, but Jim Jarmusch's approach was kind of went over my head a little bit. But you're, you're absolutely right that it's like a good low intensity movie. Patterson is a movie that is both about, but also expresses a particular poetic style. It's about, let's be clear, a bus driver played by Adam Driver, um, who loves poetry and also loves his wife played by Golshifta Farahani, uh, a homemaker who has artistic aspirations of her own. And the style of poetry that Patterson, the character, loves is the very grounded poetry of William Carlos Williams, whose driving idea was no ideas but in things. It's in the focus on the ordinary stuff of life that we find the transcendent. There's a philosophical idea called the ecstatic quotidian, the idea that the banal experiences of everyday life can be transfigured through contemplation and especially through modern art. Sounds a little bit like Therese's little way. Yeah, you could say that. You know, it has an added layer of meaning for me because I grew up in the Patterson area and I went to school in the same neighborhood in the same streets that Patterson drives his bus. So I, all of my childhood memories are coming to life. And, you know, the, the stuff of your childhood is also kind of transfigured in yeah. this way through contemplation and through memory. So Patterson is a movie that I love. Let's pick a couple more movies, one going back a little further and then one going back much further, a movie that a lot of people remember well and enjoyed very much is Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe. Mm -hmm. This is a movie about marriage and it's, it's about a marriage with a particular struggle involved in it because the main character played by Russell Crowe is mentally ill. But there's a really interesting line from his wife in the movie, played by Jennifer Connelly, who talks about what makes their relationship work. She says, I look at him and I force myself to see the man I'm married and he becomes someone I love and I become someone who loves him. It's not all the time, but it's enough. I think this is a very interesting portrayal of the extent to which compromise is an element in many successful relationships. And also that narrative idea that I talked about before. We form our sense of self through narrative. Our life is a story that we tell ourselves and we have integrity when the different chapters of that story all add up to a coherent narrative instead of a narrative about conflicting characters. And if that's true, then maybe a successful marriage can be viewed as a kind of tandem story, a story in which two people agree to write together the story of their lives. It's a story that the husband tells his wife and that the wife tells her husband. And that's what we could say perhaps about a successful marriage. You know, then you have marriages that fall apart. You have uh, struggles, you have 
separations and and divorce. And when this happens, you have a character who's been writing a tandem story who maybe loses faith in the narrative, begins to write side chapters on their own, and then eventually the side chapter becomes the main narrative. And you look at something like Noah Baumbach's marriage story. Also with Adam Driver. Also with Adam Driver, (laughs) yes. And and Scarlett Johansson, a story about a couple that is already on the outs and, and, and moving further apart. But what we see in the story, the reason it's called marriage story and not divorce story, is that Sometimes divorce is part of the story of a marriage. The two are not completely separate humans. They remain entangled in one another's life, partly because they have a son that they share, and they also know each other in a way that no one else does. So the story ends in sadness, but not necessarily in complete despair. And there's there's hope for some kind of new happiness after this very sad ending. Yeah, and, and and the marriage still exists, right? Like you know, the, in spite of the the civil recognition of a divorce, and that movie does sort of it doesn't just write off the marriage as a thing that's gone and, and is over now, right? Like it it continues to have an impact on their lives. I think that's true, and I think that's really important, and that does go to the decision to title the movie "Marriage Story." Yeah. It remains a story of a marriage even after the divorce is final. And that is brought home in a completely different way and with a completely different ending in a movie that I just love beyond all reason, John Favreau's Chef, (laughs) which is a movie about an amiably divorced couple whose relationship goes in a very different direction. In both of these stories, part of the problem in the marriage is the husband's artistic aspirations in his career and his frustration with his life. He can't give the 110% to his career and his artistic aspirations as he wants and also give his wife what she needs. And, you know, that works out one way in the sense that it doesn't work out in a marriage story. But in Chef, it works out in a different way. We see the possibility of resolving those problems and winding up in a very different place. Yeah, it's a really it's a really nice uh, treatment of how somebody can react to what was previously a broken relationship and, you know, take the next step. I also just want to say, since we've, we've been talking about movies that are largely for grownups, one of the most sophisticated and insightful portrayals that I've ever seen of not a perfect marriage, but an ultimately solid marriage is in an animated film, Brad Bird's The Incredibles. This yeah. is a movie that children appreciate on one level. And as the child grows, the movie means more and more to them. And it, it, it plays in a completely different way for adults. The, the relationship between Bob and Helen, uh, which starts out one way and then we you know we see them and we flash forward 10 years and, and we see that their the relationship has gotten into a rut in certain ways and there are definitely problems relating to Bob's emotional struggles but also as in chef these are problems that can ultimately be solved but but the emotional intelligence and the sophistication about the ways that people who love each other fight mm-hmm. and what's underlying that what's unstated and how those issues can ultimately be confronted and resolved i think is handled with a grace that you don't see in in a lot of movies for adults i also want to mention among other animated movies with marriages that are worth discussing another pixar film pete doctor's inside out 
Disney's The Emperor's New Groove. The marriage there plays. It's a small element in the film, but it's really beautiful. Great portrayal of a mother of two and a pregnant housewife who knows her husband very well and they have a great relationship and she is able to support him on the fly when things come up. (laughs) And then more recently, The Mitchells versus The Machines. This is a story about a young girl with aspirations of going into film and her kind of difficult relationship with both of her parents, but especially her father. And what I like about this movie is the way that the husband and the wife kind of come together each in spite of their shortcomings and and the difficulties in the relationship with the kids. And they don't pit each other against the kids or or let the kids take sides. It's also a movie in which genuine human problems are confronted and portrayed in ultimately a very hopeful light. In like a realistic, but also a charitable way. Yeah. It's not Pollyanna. It's not a movie that paints over those difficulties. But in the end, these are characters who still, in spite of They're real flaws, characters who love each other and are committed to each other. Well, we could keep doing this for way longer, but we are definitely out of time. So first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and for giving us a whole lot more ideas of what to talk about in the future, some of which were already on the list. Yes. (laughs) Where can people find you online? You can find pretty much everything I've written about movies and some things I've written about other stuff as well at my website, decentfilms.com. Great. And we'll have that in the episode notes. Once again, Deacon Stephen Gradonis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has been such a blessing to have you with us for a hundred episodes. So thank you all for your support and for listening, and especially to our original host, Sarah Perla, for getting this podcast off the ground and recording more than half of the episodes that got us to a hundred. As always, be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you.